Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief. Uh, Just subscribe to the channel there. Uh, You can do so from your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, You can also uh, just find all the previous podcasts uh, from the website. If you go to the top menu bar and just click on podcast, you can see the audio and the video there. Uh, You can also subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, and I would encourage you to do so. Um, If you have any questions or any comments or words of encouragement, you can send those to jason at logicalbelief.org. All righty. Well, today um, we are going to uh, have an episode that uh, came about uh, as a a conversation that I had with a, a friend of mine who's an Arminian, and uh, we had an interesting discussion, but I thought as after that discussion that uh, some of the things that we went through would be very uh, <clears throat> helpful uh, to do on a podcast, because I think that a lot of these questions um, are issues that uh, many people uh, might have and not quite understand when it comes to reform theology. And uh, and these are many of the common um, attacks and, and moves that synergists have against uh, God's sovereignty in salvation. So uh, we're going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about does regeneration precede faith? And we're also going to talk about um, is God the author of evil? Uh, from the Reformed perspective. So before we jump into that, though, uh, let's hear a brief word from Jersey Fire. Mark your calendar. Jersey Fire is July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. The topic, the Word of God. The speakers, Matt Slick from Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Justin Peters from Justin Peters Ministry, and Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity. Jersey Fire will equip you to talk to the lost and then put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. Jersey Fire, July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. For details, go to jerseyfire.org. Alrighty, well, welcome back. Um, we are going to uh, first go through uh, a presentation that I've put together um, entitled uh, Does Regeneration Precede Faith? And for those of you out there that you know are Reformed in your soteriology, you do understand that it is God's grace um, that by which you are saved, His sovereign grace, and you recognize that. However, you may not be aware at how strongly the Bible actually teaches that regeneration is something that precedes faith. And, uh, you know, many Reformed people may simply think that that particular understanding in Reformed theology is the, um, is simply the outworking of the theological system in itself. But what we're going to do today is look at what Scripture says in relation to this and to see if it powerfully affirms that the new birth, that the new creation, uh, as we call regeneration, being born again, um, does that precede faith? And 
Uh, before we jump into it, I want to, we're going to look at a bunch of texts. We're going to be going through a lot of scripture today, and I'm going to quickly uh, go through uh, this particular uh, section, and I really want to spend a little bit more time on Is God the Author of Evil? So we're going to go through these pretty quickly, but I want to, uh, first of all, before I jump into this question, does regeneration precede faith, I want you to understand how we as uh, Reformed people, how we look at that. Um, <clears throat> what do we mean by that? And when we say that regeneration precedes faith, we are not talking about a temporal priority. Um, what we mean by that is that a logical, uh, it is a logical priority. And I'll give an example of that so you can understand uh, what I mean by that. But what we mean by that is that there is no time, uh, and that's why I use the word temporal, there is no time between regeneration and then there's a period of time and then we um, have faith. What we are saying that whenever regeneration is present, then also faith is present. But regeneration is logically prior to faith, and regeneration must be there, the new creation must be there, in order for faith to proceed. So, I'll describe it in this way. Let me grab two books off my shelf here. So, the question I would have, and for those of you that are listening to the podcast, I'll kind of describe what I'm doing here, but I have two books in my hand. I'll hold them up to the camera, okay? So I've got here, this is Presuppositional Apologetics by Greg Bonson, and this is John MacArthur's One Perfect Life. It's kind of a uh, synoptic gospel um, book on the synoptics. So um, I'm going to, you can see I'm holding them up um, vertically right here right now, and now I'm going to turn it and I'm going to hold it up horizontally. Okay, so we have MacArthur's book at the bottom, and we have Bonson's book at the top. Okay, which one is logically prior to the other? In other words, is Bonson's book here being held up by MacArthur's book? Its position in space currently is being determined by the book underneath, right? But which one was temporally or in time prior to the other? Well, neither. They were both at the same time. Uh, there is no time factor involved in this prioritization. But where this book here at the top rests is determined by the one that holds it up. And so when we as Reformed people say that regeneration precedes faith, it's exactly as in that example. Regeneration holds up and precedes the faith that we have, even though it was not temporally prior. It was logically prior. And the reason that we say that is because if we would affirm that faith can happen five seconds, five minutes, five hours, five days after regeneration, then that means that there is a new creation in Christ. There is one who has been born again that, at least for whatever period of time, does not have faith in Christ, that does not have faith in in God as his Savior. So the opposite, if 
faith precedes regeneration, then that means that one who has not been born again, who is still in the flesh, the Bible describes that we are in either one of two states. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 6, it says that which is of flesh is, is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. There is only two options. You are either born of the spirit or you are only born of the flesh. And so if faith precedes regeneration, then that means that there is one who is in the flesh who is exhibiting what Romans 8, 8 says that he cannot do. He cannot do that which is pleasing to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so that is why we say um, that uh, regeneration is logically prior to faith. Okay, let's jump back to our presentation here, and we want to go through this here fairly quickly. We're going to be going through a lot of Scripture and um, we're going to start off with 1 John 5.1. Now, it wasn't until my recent conversation with my synergist friend that I realized actually how devastating this text really is uh, to the synergistic system. And in 1 John 5.1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the phrase here in 1 John 5.1 that says, has been born of God, is in the Greek, ekton theon gagenete. And um, it literally renders, of God, or the God, as a definite article there, has been born. It's a perfect tense verb, meaning that it is, a, it is an action that was completed in the past but continues to the present. And so everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It then logically follows that if someone does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, he has not been born of God. Therefore, one must be born of God to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this affirms exactly what we say that regeneration, being born of God, precedes believing, genuinely believing, that Jesus is the Christ and is your Messiah. In 1 John 3, 9, we see the exact same Greek phrase being used, ekton theon gagenete, again. In 1 John 3, 9, it says, he who does not make a practice of sinning has been born of God, ekton theon gagenete again. Now, many of our synergist friends would acknowledge in 1 John 3, 9, unless they are full-blown Pelagians, uh, most of them are semi-Pelagians, so they would, they would admit that in 1 John 3, 9, that he who does not make a practice of sinning has been born of God, and therefore one who continues in a practice of sinning has not been born of God. They would acknowledge that, and they would have no problem with this text. Um, and in 1 John 4, 7, he who loves has been born of God. So they, they would then once again affirm here that one who does not love, and this is biblical love, one who does not love has therefore not been born of God. And they would acknowledge here in 1 John 3, 9 and 1 John 4, 7 
that the new birth precedes these particular actions, not practicing sinning and uh, loving. Uh, truly loving is the result of having been born of God. However, in 1 John 5, 1, they are going to have trouble with that particular text. So the next text I want to look at is Luke um, chapter 7, verse 43. And Jesus says in Luke chapter, oh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6, verse 43, um, it says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. So a bad tree does not bear good fruit, according to Jesus in Luke 6.43. In Galatians 5.22, faith is called um, a gift of the Spirit, um, a fruit of the Spirit. And in Hebrews 11.6, it says, without faith is it impossible to please God. So faith is pleasing to God, and faith is a good fruit. So therefore, a bad tree cannot exhibit faith. According to Jesus, a bad tree does not bear good fruit. In Romans chapter 8, uh, let's begin here in verse 6 of Romans chapter 8. It says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the faith, or those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. So in Romans 8, 7, it tells us that those in the flesh cannot submit to God's law. The first commandment says to have no other gods before God in Exodus 20, verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, those in the flesh cannot have faith in the only true God. In Romans 8.8, 8, it says, those in the flesh cannot please God. According to Hebrews 11, verse 6, uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. So we must have faith in order to please God. So faith is pleasing to God. Therefore, those in the flesh cannot exhibit faith. Scripture is abundantly clear on this. The next uh, text that we want to look at is John 6.29. In John 6.29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So Jesus affirms that it's God's work that we believe. It is the work of God that we believe. It is not our work that we believe. Therefore, God must perform the work so we can believe. And that work is the new birth, is regeneration. In John 6.63, Jesus, once again, in that very same powerful chapter of man's inability and God's ability, uh, John 6.44, no one can come unto me and let... No, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless... Uh, actually, let me pull that text up before I butcher it. Uh, I'm butchering it right now. Um, and I have that text memorized, so I don't know why I'm having trouble with it right now. But let's just look it up. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Notice that no one can come and 
everyone, most people would agree that the coming here is coming in faith. No one can come to Christ in faith unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is the gracious, irresistible grace that we talk about. Uh, draws him. Irresistible grace involves the act of regeneration. Uh, unless the Father sent me, draws him. And we notice here in the text that he who is drawn is also the one who is raised by Christ on the last day. You cannot split that text in in half and say that the second hymn is different than the first hymn. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. In John 6.63, it says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And in the context here at the end of John 6, is Jesus' disciples were coming to him and they were confused. They did not understand. And so Jesus reaffirms what he had just been saying through the entire chapter, that salvation is a gift of God. It's the work of God that we believe. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then Jesus says here that the Spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Only that which is born of Spirit is Spirit, in John 3, verse 6. So therefore we must be born of the Spirit to believe, which is, once again, regeneration. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um verses 6 through 16. Let's just go ahead and just read that text very quickly here. It says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit that of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? So in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 here, it says God has revealed the wisdom of God through the Spirit. So it is through the Spirit here, Paul is very clear that it is how we understand the secret things, the hidden wisdom of God, the things of God. And then he says, he proceeds to say in verse 14 of the chapter, the natural man does not accept the things of God. In fact, they're foolishness to him. So therefore, God must reveal the things of God through the working of the Spirit for us to believe. We will think of them as, fully, as foolish and, and folly if, um, unless the Spirit of God works in our hearts. In John chapter 3, verse 3, 
it, Jesus says, when speaking to Nicodemus, he says that a person cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A person does not choose to be born. Therefore, a person cannot choose to be born again. Uh, Jesus' analogy is very powerful. Um, it's very clear. Uh, just later on in that chapter, uh, Jesus says that the Spirit moves, that that we are born of the Spirit. He affirms that, and then he says the Spirit moves uh, where he will, uh, just like the wind. And he says, such it is with those who are born of God. Um, they are born by the will of the Spirit of God. In John chapter 1, verse 13, and I'm going to turn to this text here because uh, I want to read uh, the preceding verse also. Read it here in context. Um, it says, I'll start in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is the Jews. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus says here that we're not born of the will of the flesh, and we're not born of the will of man but we're born by the will of God. We are born again by the will of God, not by the will of man. Faith is an act of the will of man. Therefore, faith cannot proceed being born again. So, we went through a lot of text there very quickly on, on uh, regeneration preceding faith. Um, it, I believe the Bible is immensely clear um, on this topic. But what is the reason that men don't want to believe this? Well, it goes back to the text that we already looked at in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. While these things may be clear, um, very, very clear in Scripture, man will not accept these things unless the Spirit of God reveals it to them. Um, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, it says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So, Paul here affirms that everything that we have in Christ are those things that have we have received from God. God is the one who has given us those things, so we have nothing to boast. And this goes back to uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that we are saved by grace and not by works, so that we have nothing to boast. And that text, once again, affirms that faith is the gift of God in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Okay, well, that ends the presentation on regeneration. So let's jump to the next question. Um, that I was asked um, in my conversation with my, my synergist friend. And he, after we went through um, 
a lot of scripture um, in reference to regeneration uh, preceding faith. Um, he said that uh, that the main reason he just cannot believe in Calvinism is because uh, Calvinism makes God the author of evil. So I want to address this particular objection. And I think there's many people that that make this claim. They they do make the claim that Reformed theology makes God the author of evil. But let's examine that. Let's see if there's any rational uh, reason for that. And let's see if we as uh, Reformed people uh, actually believe that God is the author of evil. And from the Reformed faith, um, if it if it results in God being the author of evil. So we want to look at a bunch of texts, and the first thing that we need to affirm is that God does predestine all things. God is sovereign over all things. In Isaiah 46.10, um, Yahweh is speaking here. He says, declaring the end from the, from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So we notice here that Yahweh is the one who declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. God has declared them. God has determined them. In um, Isaiah fourteen twenty four, the Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. In uh, Job Chapter 23, verse 13, But he is unchangeable who can turn him back. What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. So we notice here Job affirming that it is God who has appointed for him um, uh, his his life, and those things will come to pass. Um and David says the exact same thing in Psalm 139, verse 16. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It was God who had ordained David's life. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. It is his will that is accomplished. In uh, Proverbs 16, verse uh, 4, it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So God has even made the wicked. God has a good purpose for even allowing the wicked to exist and he has a reason for it. He has made everything for its purpose. In Proverbs 16, 9, it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord is the one who establishes his steps. In Proverbs 16, 1, it says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Um, in Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, and in the seas and in all the deeps. In uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, it says, O Lord, 
God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand, our power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Uh, notice here how that none is able to withstand God. We see Nebuchadnezzar in his confession after he his sanity came back in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we see here God's absolute sovereignty over all that happens. Um, and he has declared the end from the beginning. So the question I would have is the first question I have for somebody who says that um, Reformed theology results in God being the author of evil. My first question is, is we need to deal with a presuppositional problem here. What do you mean by author? And if, if your intention by author is that God is the author of evil if he predestines an event intended by man for evil, is that, is God the author of evil if he predestines an, an event an event intended by man for evil. So if God predestines something to occur that man intends for evil, does that make God the author of evil? Well, let's see if Scripture affirms that God does predestine events that man does for evil. In Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 27, this is Peter preaching. It says, For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we see that God predestined the event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But we see here that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel purposed and intended this particular action on their part for evil, while God's intention was immensely good. It was to provide a propitiation for sin, to save sinners. Um, God's plan was to redeem a people unto himself. Jesus, um, in Matthew chapter 1, I think it's at uh, it's verse 14, or um, they shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, we see in Jeremiah, and let's uh, go to that text really quick here. Um, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah is prophesying here about Nebuchadnezzar. And beginning in verse 5, it says, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. So notice here how God says that he is sovereign, that he gives um, authority to whomever he wills, and that the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar um, is there by God's ordination and by his power to accomplish God's good purposes. And God used Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment 
And God's judgment is always righteous, to bring God's righteous judgment upon the children of Israel. He used Nebuchadnezzar. And as we can see, if we go to Daniel, we go to the book of Daniel, and we see what was King Nebuchadnezzar's intention in his heart um, with everything that had occurred. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, it says, and this is when, uh, I'll start reading a couple of verses earlier, and all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So notice what Nebuchadnezzar's intention within his heart was. Uh, in his heart, uh, he attributed and gave all of it, all the glory to himself. He gave none of the glory to God. Later on, he does do that. He does give the glory to God. But um, he did not, while he was doing all the things that God had destined for him to do, as we can see in Jeremiah 27, he did not have a good and honorable intention within his own heart. We see that God, in Isaiah chapter 10, uses the wicked king, uh, Assyrian king, to accomplish his justice. In Isaiah chapter 10, uh, verses 5 and 6, it says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like mire of the streets. And so we notice here that um, that God's intention here is to execute judgment on a godless nation. But let's see what the Assyrian king intended in this. And let's actually go to... Um, we'll just read 7 uh, and 8 here. It says, But he does not so intend, speaking of the Assyrian king, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? And jumping down to verse 12, uh, And when the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Israel and the boastful look in his eyes. So we see that God first uses the Assyrian king's actions, the events that he incurs by his actions and from his intention of his heart. He uses them to bring about his righteous judgment. But then he turns around and judges the Assyrian king for the intention of his heart. So we notice here two different intentions for the same act. So... The next question then is, so, well, going back to the first question, is God the author of evil if he predestines an event an event intended by man for evil? Well, the answer to that is can, can be no, because we see many examples in Scripture of God in predestining events to happen uh, intended by man for evil. See this in Acts, Jeremiah... Isaiah 10, we'll look at some more uh, later, like, for example, um, Genesis 50:20. So another question is, is God the author of evil if he has an evil intention for a predestined event? 
And the answer to that is, yes, he would, but the point is is that he never had an evil intention. And we see in uh, Ephesians 1, verse 11, that he works all things after the counsel of his will. We see in Romans 8, 28, that he works all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We have in uh, Psalm in uh, Psalm 18, let's go to that text really quick here. In Psalm 18, verse 30, it says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So we see that the way of the Lord is perfect. In Psalm 145, Verse 17, it says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So we notice that God is righteous in everything that he does. He is righteous and good in all of his ways. The other thing is, if we say that God has an evil intention for a predestined event, then that would make him the author of evil. But Scripture denies that he has an evil intention for anything. He works all things after the counsel of his will, and his will is always righteous. Um, we also would have a presuppositional problem here. If we would say that God has an evil intention for what he does, then we are passing judgment upon God with, with, uh, without a standard by which to judge him, other than our own subjective standard. So we end up with a presuppositional problem, because evil or good cannot be defined outside of God, um, other than we could judge him by our own subjectivity, but there is, um, what, 7 billion uh, subjects running around the planet right now? So which subject's uh, standard of good and evil is the one by which to judge God? It's, uh, it's pure sophistry to judge God by a standard um, in one of his creatures. So the next thing we want to look at is that in events are not evil or good in and of themselves. The intentions are antecedent to the event. Oh, I didn't write that right. I have to correct that. Uh, the intentions are antecedent to the event. The intentions antecedent to the event are good or evil. So the intentions behind an event are what is good and what is evil. In Genesis 50, verse 20, is a classic example of this. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers after um, his father Jacob had died, and his brothers were, were immensely worried that Joseph was going to exact vengeance and revenge upon them for the wicked stuff they had done to him. But Joseph responds very graciously in Genesis 50, verse 20, because he understood the sovereignty of God. He says in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the event, it, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we notice that Joseph's brothers intended it for evil, and God meant it for good. And so we see one single event intended by two agents. One intended it for good, and one intended it for evil. 
We see this exact same thing in Acts 2, verse 23. It says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we see here, one of God's intentions was good here. God had many intentions with the crucifixion of Christ, but one was to loosen the pangs of death. A good intention. One event, the crucifixion of Christ, intended by lawless men for evil, and intended by God to loose the pangs of death. So we see two intentions for one event in time. Let's look at a, a couple other examples just in in real life. So is a one man shooting another man in the chest, is that particular event or that particular action evil in itself? Well, it entirely depends on what the intention of the ind individual is. If the intention of the man shooting the other man in the chest is to perhaps uh, save the life of, uh, let's say, a woman that this man is uh, raping and, and maybe killing or harming in some way, and another man shoots him in the chest, well, then that action is good. It is, it is uh, to uh, protect another individual's life. Uh, now, if another man, if a man shoots another man in the chest to, um, and he has uh, an evil intention in his, in his heart, he he simply wants to kill him, to maybe get his wealth, uh, maybe he hates that man uh, for whatever reason. Um, that is then an evil act, and it's evil because of the intention behind it. We see, uh, let's say, a man strikes a woman on the cheek. We go, well, that that act is evil. Well, let's say she has a a poisonous spider on her cheek, and the man strikes uh, her cheek in order to kill the spider to protect her. Well, then the act becomes good. So it depends upon the intention uh, behind uh, the particular act. Uh, often when we get more information, we can see the intention behind an individual. And that's the point. God is omniscient and we are not. We do not know all the contingencies. We do not know um, all the reasons. We do not know all the, the situations behind any particular event. But we do trust in the God who says that he works all things after the counsel of his will, that his will is always righteous, and that he is the one who declares the end from the beginning. And so we believe these things, and we don't question them. Um, because we trust in God. We believe in God, and we trust in God. So, events and actions in themselves are not evil. It is the intentions behind them. We see that God judges intentions. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 12, it tells us that the Word of God is... Uh, let's see here. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. So notice here that God's Word judges the intention of the heart. In Jeremiah uh, chapter 17, um, and then verse, well, actually, let's read verse 9, because most of us know this verse. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to 
his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. So notice here that God judges the intention of the heart. He searches out the heart and he judges the intention of the heart. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse um, 1, it says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So notice here, what actually comes off the tongue of man is determined by God, but the plans of the heart belong to man, and that is what God judges. God either restrains the evil in our heart to accomplish his purpose, or he allows us to do the evil that we intend in our heart. In Genesis 6, verse 5, God when just before he exacts judgment upon the entire earth and floods the earth, killing all life uh, in an act of judgment, says in verse 5 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we see that here God judges the intentions of the heart. Um, it is the... It is the grounds by which um, an action that a man perpetuates is either evil or good is dependent upon the intention of his heart. And man's heart is evil continually and intends all things for evil, uh, nothing um, according to God's nature unless God saves him and regenerates him. So we see that there can be more than one intention for a single event. Uh, different acting agents can have their own intentions for the same event. We see the example of Joseph's brothers and God, both in Genesis 50, verse 20, both having um, different intentions for the exact same event. We could give another example, even in real life. You take um, a drug dealer and maybe an undercover police officer that's working with him. Uh, they might both perpetuate... Um, a criminal act, but the undercover police officer does it in order to bring about justice, uh, a good thing, and the drug dealer performs that particular act uh, because he is uh, greedy, um, he has evil intentions for the things that he does. So we can see, even in real life, we encounter two different intentions for um, even within our reality at the human level, we see uh, multiple different intentions for a single particular act. Uh, some intentions are evil and others are good. So can God intend for good? Well, is it logically possible for God to intend a particular event for good that man intends for evil? I think we've proven that, right, in Genesis 50:20, in Acts 2, 23 through 24 that God can intend for good what man intends for evil. So if it is logically possible for God to intend a particular event for good, can God intend all events for good? Well, in Mark 10, um, let's go to that real quick. Mark 10, verse 27. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all. All things are possible with God. So if it's logically possible for God to intend a particular event for good, then God, it is logically possible for God to intend all events for good. Um, so let's look here. It is logically possible for God to intend a particular event for good that man intends for evil. We see Genesis 50, 20. 
with God all things that are logically possible are possible. Mark 10:27. God predestines all events. Isaiah 46 verse 10. All of God's intentions are good. Psalm 145 verse 17. All the ways of the Lord are righteous. Therefore God does intend all things for good. The final argument uh, that we'll go through here is God predestines all events. Isaiah 46:10. He declares the end from the beginning he will accomplish all his purpose intentions not events are either evil or good we have uh, Genesis uh, 50 verse 20 and Acts 2 23 uh, through 24 that the intentions behind the events not the events themselves are what is are what are evil and good uh, the second premise or the third premise for any given event two or more agents can have different intentions we see Genesis 50 20 on that for every given event, God can intend it for good, while man intends it for evil. Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 6 and 12. God does intend every event for good. Ephesians 1.11. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Therefore, God is not the author of evil. Let's run through that again. God predestines all events. Premise 1. Premise 2. Intentions, not events, are either good or evil. Premise 3. For any given event, two or more agents can have different intentions. Premise four, for every given event, God can intend it for good, while man intends it for evil. Premise five, God does intend every event for good. And the conclusion, therefore, God is not the author of evil. Evil is the intention of one's heart. And God's heart is perfect, and God's heart itself is the standard of what is good and what is evil. And so, uh, while every intention of man's heart may be evil, uh, Genesis 6, verse 5, every intention of God's heart is good. And so, therefore, man can intend an event in time for evil, and God can intend it for good. And God, therefore, is not the author of evil. The problem is that if we say that man's free will is the solution for God not being the author of evil, then the problem with this is that man becomes the author of good. And God is the author of good. Man is the author of evil. And the problem is, is that when we have a synergistic view, when, when we look at the Bible through the lens of, of man and not with a, uh, a theocentric but an anthropocentric view, a man-centered theology versus a God-centered theology, what ends up happening is we end up attributing good to man. Um, in let's quickly turn to uh, James uh, chapter one, verse seventeen. It says, "Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or sh shadow due to change." So, God is both immutable. And every good thing comes from him. It does not come from man. Uh, and so if, if man's free will is the solution for God not being the author of evil, then man becomes the author of good. It means then that man is the one who makes good choices, and he can do so from the good intention of his own heart. And he does not require God to graciously... Um, allow him to intend something for good. 
God must raise up man's heart. He must be the antecedent cause, the good cause behind man being able to do anything good. We see in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not been given? In Genesis 41, uh, 16, let's turn to that real quickly here. Joseph answered, Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So notice here that Joseph did not attribute his being able to do what, um, what Pharaoh was asking him to do uh, in interpreting his dream. He did not attribute it to himself, but he gave all the glory to God. In Exodus 31, verse 3, it says, and I have filled him, this is speaking of uh, Bezalel, the son of uh, Uri, um, who God had equipped with the ability to um, uh, be an artistic designer to design the things for the tabernacle. He said, I have filled him with the Spirit of God and with the ability, intelligence, with knowledge, and all craftsmanship. So we notice here it was God who provided these things for Bezalel, if I can say it right. Um, and we notice even here in Philippians uh, 1.29, we see that uh, not only has it been granted to us to suffer for his sake, but also to believe in him. So we notice here that believing is a gift from God. It has been granted to us to believe, Philippians 1.29. And in Acts 11.18, we can see, um, it says, And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So we notice that faith is a gift given to us by God. We see that repentance is a gift that has been given to us by God. It has been granted to us. So man is not the author of these good things. It is God who is the author of these good things. And if we use man's free will as the solution for God not being the author of evil, then man becomes the author of good. The other question of, is if man's free will is the answer to suffering, pain, and evil— that is the uh, the apologetic answer you're going to give for that. Uh, man's free will does not provide an answer for naturally caused suffering. This is something only caused by God. So if all pain and suffering uh, is due to uh, man's free will, uh, man's free will actions, uh, this does not provide an answer for naturally caused suffering. Um the biblical answer is that God has a good purpose and intention for every event in time that man has intended for evil and every natural event he has determined to bring about. God has a good reason for absolutely everything that has occurred, including a flood that flooded the entire earth. Now, we may go, well, I don't understand. I don't understand why God did a particular act within time. Why did the tsunami happen? Uh, why did uh, God flood the entire earth? Why did a tornado hit a particular person's house? Um, we might not know all those answers, but 
these we trust in the God who has said that he works all things after the counsel of his will. We trust in him. That's the part of being a Christian. We trust in God. We trust that he is uh, always has a good intention and a good purpose for all that he does because he himself is the standard of goodness. So that is um, all I had today. That was a lot of information. That was quick. Uh, hopefully that was helpful uh, to you. Um, uh, so already, well, I don't know if I will be here next week or not. I do have a business trip over next weekend. So we'll see. Maybe I'll shoot an episode during the week. I do want to do uh, an upcoming episode on um, some, I want to go over biblical um, evidence first for a young earth. And then I want to go over some scientific evidence that demonstrate uh, that is consistent with biblical revelation. I believe biblical revelation is paramount in this particular discussion. Uh, but uh, I want to also then look at um, some scientific evidence that puts limiting factors on the age of the earth and the fact that God did create the earth in six literal days and that this was within very recent history and not millions of years ago. So that is something I'm going to touch on uh, at least in a couple of weeks. So uh, hopefully this was helpful to you and uh, edifying to you. And uh, Lord willing, we will do another episode next week or the following. So we'll see you then. God bless. Done.